Hi, and welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vanderwerf, the I, and I Think You're Interesting. I think we've got a fun episode for you this week. Let me sort of set the scene for you. You know how every year the president gets up in front of the press? Well, every year, but under the current administration. The president gets up in front of the press. He delivers some jokes. He roasts the press. He roasts himself. He roasts his administration. It's this time-honored tradition we call the White House Correspondents' Dinner. And for that dinner, he has to have jokes. He has to have material. Now... I had never really thought about like the process of how that happens. I just assumed like a team of comedy writers descended from on high and handed the president some material, which he then delivered to the press. Everybody laughed and, and had a good time. And, you know, the White House Correspondents Dinner became this thing. Well, that's true. Certainly there is professional help, especially in democratic administrations, because Hollywood is nothing if not a democratic town. The president's own staff, his speechwriters have to come up with funny material, and they have to start working on that incredibly early to be ready for the correspondence dinner, which happens every year in April, sometimes in May, you know, in the spring, let's say. And one of the people who was instrumental in doing that in the Obama White House was a man named David Litt. He's written a book about the experience, which is called Thanks, Obama, My Hopey, Changey White House Years. Uh, he's a very funny guy. It's, it's a fun book. It's sort of this interesting look at like what it's like to go from somebody who's not particularly political to working in the White House. And I, I really enjoyed talking to David about like the process of writing comedy for the most powerful person on earth. And I think you probably will enjoy it too. So let's, let's take a listen to that. My guest is David Litt. He is the author of Thanks, Obama, My Hopey Changey. White House years. David, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So you and I have an interesting uh, connection, I realized, from reading your book, which is we have both worked for Onion Incorporated at various points in our lives. Uh, you worked for the Onion proper. I worked for the AV Club. You were not there long. Um, what's like? What's your memory of that place? That, were they still in New York at that time when you they were there? They were still in New York. I was an intern in the summer of 2007. Right. And I remember my boss, Joe... Uh, who was the managing director, wore those roller skate shoes. Sure. And so that's how he got around, and he sold uh, a variety of feminine hygiene products, among other things, from a sort of cubicle bodega that he had going. And uh, and most of my memories are of, of kind of admiring the people there and thinking they were cool and realizing that maybe I was not cut out for this. Interestingly, This American Life did a piece about the Onion Writers' Room and mm -hmm. how competitive it was and how intense things got. And they talked about a joke that almost tore the writer's room apart, uh, which the, over the headline, ghost of dead father drops in to say boo. Um, <laughs> or maybe it was just ghost drops in to say boo. I think that's what it was. Whatever. Uh, but that was the only writer's room I ever sat in on. Right. And so uh, I, I sat in my one writer's meeting as an intern, and I watched the place almost destroy itself over this headline. Um, and that was I, I quoted this in in my book where one of the editors stormed out and said, we're a comedy paper, not a stupid paper, and then left dramatically. And I was like, this is the coolest thing I have ever been a part of. <laughs> so the bulk of your book is about your time working in the Obama White House, but uh, also a lot of it's about writing comedy for the president, which seems like a really tricky needle to thread. So tell me a little bit about like, Maybe not even Obama, but like any president. Like what's a joke you can and can't tell with somebody that powerful? I think there's two different questions there. One is what can you not do because it's inappropriate? Mm -hmm. And the other is what can you not do because it's just not funny if a president does it? I think that the most important thing about any president telling a joke is that the joke is that it's the president telling a joke. Right. And that's most of where the comedy comes from. So that means that the bar of what's edgy – 
what's out there is a lot lower than it would be if I was writing jokes for a comedian. And different different presidents have been uh, kind of approaching this in different ways. So Ronald Reagan was very funny, mm-hmm. but in the much more classic, like, let me tell you a story about, you know, a cow, a farmer, and a sheepdog or whatever yeah. kind of thing. And he told good jokes like that. You know, uh, with President Obama, I think it was definitely not those kind of story set up punchline jokes, but kind of more like observation and then a punchline to it. Mm -hmm. To try to answer your question a little more succinctly, I think that the number one topic we would not joke about was national security. And that was important to us because one of the things about writing jokes for a president is if you have the joke – and then, and it's totally in good taste, but then a week later something happens. There's a tragedy, there's a shooting, there's a, a terrorist attack. The joke can become retroactively in mm-hmm. bad taste. Mm-hmm. And so I think that was an important thing for us. We didn't want anything to end up in a campaign ad. Right. Yeah. And we also didn't want to do anything that was insensitive and, and diminish the office. The other thing was, I think it was important that the jokes were an extension of who President Obama was the rest of the time. So uh, an example is every year... I would get pitched jokes, and this was totally fine because our goal was to get pitched everything. But we, I would get pitched jokes about Chris Christie, where the the butt of the joke was that he was a big guy, right? And we just didn't want to make jokes about someone's physical appearance. Like we'd make fun of him for Bridgegate, you know, for for shutting down traffic and uh, all of that, like the scandal and the arrogance and all of those things. That was fair game. But the idea of making fun of somebody—I mean, when when President Obama made fun of Trump, which he did frequently. Um, you know, he didn't talk about his hands or he didn't say like, oh, he's orange. You know, it was this was a stuff that was focused on sort of who this person is politically and the choices they've made rather than their physical appearance. And I think that's a reflection of who President Obama is. That, that kind of pivots into another thing I wanted to ask, which is we kind of have this theory now people talk about in comedy of punching up and punching down, of trying to make jokes about people who either are on sort of the same level as you or have more power than you. But the president theoretically has the most power of anyone in the world there's like unless you're like i guess joking about god like that's the only way to punch up like how do you find ways to tell those jokes without coming off as mean well i think there were two approaches one is yes the president is by definition uh rarely punching up in terms of just who has more power like who can you know order a drone strike on who the president's going to come out on top of that conversation most of the time I do think that um, self-deprecating humor is a way to even out that a little bit. So, mm-hmm. for example, usually in one of the president's uh, White House Correspondence Center monologues, the first couple of jokes, and then throughout we would kind of sprinkle some jokes where he's making fun of himself. As some of you heard, uh, the state of Hawaii released my official long-form birth certificate. But just in case there are any lingering questions, tonight... I'm prepared to go a step further. Tonight, for the first time, I am releasing my official birth video. We tried to make those as real as possible, where he was, they were legitimate jokes where, you know, he was taking himself down a peg. In part, I think, because he enjoyed that and saw the value of it. But more than that, or in addition to that, there was a sense that that gives you the license to then talk about people who really bug you a little bit. And and I think what we would have said was that we weren't punching so much as truth-telling. I think that was right. both the euphemism that we used, but there was some truth to it. 
in politics, you, you so rarely get outside that back and forth where you say something and then someone else says the opposite. And regardless of who's right, it gets covered as a controversy or a debate rather than a statement. Right. Um, jokes were a way around that. So, for example, you know, when President Obama was making fun of something Mitch McConnell did or you know, making fun of Ted Cruz for having a big ego, I, I don't think that those were moments where he's punching down. Sure. Uh, you know, I wouldn't say he's punching up exactly, but he's kind of uh, lifting the lid on something that everyone in Washington knows and thinks about, but we're not allowed to say because of the conventions of D.C., or at least, you know, sort of pre-Trump conventions of D.C. Right, right. One of the things that, just having seen Obama on television, I've never seen him in any other capacity, but he always seemed to me like, while he was comfortable with power, he also seemed to see sort of a ridiculousness to it, like to the pomposity of presidential life and things like that. But, and like, I think that that was why self-deprecation worked so well for him. Like, how, how quickly did you realize that self-deprecation was like a thing he did really well? Well, I think any president needs to have that kind of self-deprecating gear if they're going to tell jokes. Mm-hmm. And I started writing speeches for a firm called West Wing Writers, where all of the partners sure. in this private sector firm were Clinton speechwriters. And they used to tell kind of war stories. And a lot of them were about writing jokes for Bill Clinton and Al Gore. So it was drummed into my head as I was starting out writing speeches and jokes that self-deprecation is sort of a necessary thing. You know, it's not sufficient, but you have to do it. The other thing that I think helped with President Obama is there is something fundamentally strange about the presidency, even when somebody incredibly well-qualified holds that office, which is, I mean, one human being has just an extraordinarily outsized amount of power, right. uh, you know, literally life and death power over the entire planet if they choose to exercise it, which is something I don't like to think about these days. But even in the best of circumstances, there's something just ridiculous about that. And I think with, without speaking to sort of exactly what President Obama was thinking, because I don't know, I got the sense that he had the confidence and the um, I don't even know what you would call it, but whatever it is that allows someone to embrace that role without going without having a nervous breakdown yeah but also the self-awareness to realize there is something fundamentally absurd about it and that wasn't most of the time he wasn't acknowledging that because that's not the point of the job but i think sometimes through some of the more humorous things that came out a little bit and i think that combination you don't have a lot of self-aware politicians of any stature let alone presidents and it's pretty rare to have a president who is self-aware in the way that President Obama was. When you kind of got started in the in the speech writing game, did you go back and look at other presidents and see how their speeches went? Like, were, were there other presidents you found particularly effective uh, speech orators, I guess would be the word? I looked at some of them. Uh, you know, while I was still at the White House, I would have pretended, you know, I would have told you that I looked at lots of them just to, to try to sound significant. I had lots of books of speeches on my shelf that I didn't read. The interesting thing about a lot of presidential uh, speech writing and oratory is that it's changed so much. So if you look at a a Teddy Roosevelt speech, those are fascinating and you can think about the construction. They – and you can sometimes pull themes or ideas Um, and and some of the ideas really could be – you could take them and stick them today and they would make total sense. But the language and the way a speech is crafted, they just sound so different. So I I think those things were – interesting to read, but it wasn't the kind of thing where it was like absolutely essential. You kind of have a crash course in speech writing where you have to read through past presidents. I will say there were a few exceptions. So for example, like Robert Kennedy speeches or Martin Luther King Jr. speeches, obviously, those tend to 
resonate not just in terms of their themes, but in terms of their construction. Right. Where, you know, I wouldn't say that that's usually what we did. It's not usually what I did, but it would have been nice if we had. I mean, <laughs> that was a good goal where um, other, particularly kind of before that, uh, you didn't always have presidents speak in a way that would be, uh, what's the right word, relatable today. Yeah, yeah. In the book, you get really well into, I guess, the drudgery of writing speech after speech after speech and how they all end up kind of being the same in some ways. Were there times when you felt like you could really break free of that and do something, I don't want to say creative, but or artistic, or but you know what I mean by those words, like something that was a little more uh, freeing maybe? A little bit. I actually think most of writing presidential speeches for me was craft rather than art. Mm-hmm. And realizing that it was craft rather than art was uh, an important part for me of, of kind of professional growth. Uh, I got better at my job when I stopped thinking that I was there to sort of uh, create the wheel from scratch mm. and where my job was to kind of do the same thing we were doing but make it a little bit better. But I also think that in the same way that there is really good craft, there's something valuable and, and also really satisfying about doing something familiar in a way that you feel like is done at a very high level. You know, I'm thinking now of like it's closer to, you know, sort of Jero Dreams of Sushi, right, than whatever that other Netflix documentary is. For example, we would, in almost every speech beyond a certain length, we would try to tell a story of what we would call a real person, right? right? So somebody who is an American, has a great story, you know, represents the best of America and doesn't work in government or politics. And... To do that right, and there were times when I did when I did it wrong, but when you get it right, even though the beats of the story start to feel similar, and even though the idea of putting a personal story in a speech is certainly not something I came up with, I mean, that's been around for a very long time, it feels amazing when you get it right. So I right. think there's the satisfaction that I associate with creating something, even though speeches were not creative in the way that kind of starting with a blank canvas is creative. You mentioned Reagan being funny. Lincoln, of course, is famous for telling long-winded anecdotes that ended up having great punchlines. Are there underrated presidential joke tellers or underrated political leaders who were great joke tellers? That's a good question. I think George W. Bush probably at the time – I feel like now he's he's having a, a moment thanks to Donald <laughs> Trump. But I think at the time, um, you know, Bush got in a lot of trouble, understandably and I think rightly, for, for joking about weapons of mass destruction. Yeah. Um, and, and not finding any. And that was, to go back to something we talked about, that was the kind of thing we thought about when we were wondering, hey, should we put leave this in a speech? Should we take it out? Is, is this joke going to look like that? I think he was a, a sort of funny, charming, and affable person in a way that a lot of people who didn't like him maybe weren't willing to give him credit for. Sure. I'm not sure that he would have like a career in comedy if he wanted it. But I do think there was that sense of like if you met him at a party – he would be really fun to be around. And I think that counts for something in politics. And, and you know, I'm not a fan of George W. Bush as a president, but I do think that was an underrated skill that he had. Yeah, I always felt I, I was not a, a Bush fan either, but I always felt like he was good at telling dad jokes in a way that is like it's deceptively hard. Like it's hard to tell good dad jokes. Yeah, absolutely. I think that. Right. Exactly. Like he would actually be the dad where like, you know, he's hanging out with all the other dads. And, yeah. But he's the only one who's actually getting laughs. That, yeah. that I think is exactly right. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, you know, a different set of qualities than being able to deliver a joke on stage. But it's certainly very helpful if you're the president. I look at Trump now a lot and he 
gets a lot of laughs and his speeches are structured like stand-up routines a lot of the time. And it's very strange to me. You, you've kind of moved on to continue working in the comedy world. And I wonder when you look at him setting aside politics, setting aside everything, when you look at him just in terms of pure delivery, do you find that what he's doing effective at all? To, to me, like, it seems like a very poor stand-up routine, but it's clearly working for somebody. Um, well, I, and, and I will say it's so hard to think objectively about Trump, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, somebody's in the process of burning your house down and you're like, yeah, but what, what do you think their fashion choices? And you're like, <laughs> I, I'm having trouble focusing. Yeah. But I will try. I think that and, – and trying to understand Trump is sort of our national pastime right now. Right. I think that if you watch what he's doing, the only way it, there's a logic to it is if he only cares about and only thinks about his base, the people who really love him. And even mm-hmm. by, by his base, not just his voters, but I think he seems happiest and most comfortable in rallies full of people who, you know, as he's pointed out, he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and they would still support him. Frankly, right. they probably support him more at this point. So in that context, I think he is very entertaining to that group of people in the same way that like, you know, if you're in middle school and some bully gives a wedgie to some poor kid, he's going to get a laugh from the people who are really into that bully. And I think that tends to be the kind of laughter that Trump elicits. Parsing laughter, I think, is probably fool's errand, but it is it's humor and there's a sense of timing and there's a sense of a, you know, a punchline, but it's almost always about dominance. Yeah. It's never a an end rather than a means. It's always about humor as a tool for dominating somebody else, some other group, demonizing someone. So I, I don't think that's surprising. I think that's lots of people's senses of humor, unfortunately. Yeah. But you talked about kind of punching up and punching down, and sometimes it's not so clear. But with Trump, it's very clear that even when protesters get pulled away. He's sometimes even said something along the lines of like, you guys have no power. I mean, it's like literally just pure text instead of subtext. And that's a laugh line. So um, I think that, again, I do think he has an entertainer's instincts, but I think the way that he uses them is more bullying than entertaining. Now you've sent me on like a reverie of trying to figure out recent presidents, what their middle school joke telling technique <laughs> was. Uh, Obama was probably making like pop culture references. Yeah, uh, well, and I think probably trash talk on the court, right? Yeah, like I think that's yeah. particularly um, – and I talk about sort of how he would you know, tease staffers a little bit or kind of give you a look if you did something stupid. Not in a way he, – he didn't yell at staff and he didn't belittle staff in a way that I think is really impressive because there's a lot of politicians of both parties – who don't treat staff very well mm-hmm. um, and use the fact that they have a tough job, I think, sort of as a crutch or an excuse for that. And President Obama had a harder job than anybody, and I never heard of him yelling at a staff member. But he would let you know. Yeah. And he'd kind of let you know by by teasing you a little bit, but like, you know, he'd let you know he's joking and also that he wasn't even a tiny bit joking. And yeah. I think that was a really impressive skill. But I also, I could imagine him you know we're talking about middle school i can imagine him on the court like coming up with some pretty good trash talk not just that it kind of hurts but that it, it gets it like there there's a level of intuition yeah where he's getting at the thing about you where you're like how did he know that yeah because uh, he's good at, he could read people really well my general feeling is that george w bush was really good at armpit farts and like people probably just loved it um, yeah <laughs> i mean yeah that would be you know uh I, i'm in i th- well i i think um Right. Gary Trudeau from from Doonesbury, mm-hmm. his first comic or one of his first comics ever was at Yale. 
And it was a, about George W. Bush. Maybe there was a thinly veiled, you know, George W. Bush like character, but uh, branding fraternity pledges mm. um, at, at Deke, Bush's fraternity. Uh, you know, so I think it was very much that kind of I, I think at the time that probably would have been seen as like, oh, in good fun, we're just mutilating this person. But <laughs> but it is an earlier time or whatever. But I do think, you know, that that did come up. I think that's the first time uh, I don't know if it's the first time we heard of George W. Bush, but it's one of the first big stories he was involved in was as a as a college student. Maybe you got political jokes you want to tell. Maybe you want to just uh, talk about the situation in Washington. Maybe you want to, like, you know, do some of that classic material, like talk about those clowns in Congress. What a bunch of clowns. How do you keep up with the news? Well, maybe you should start a website. Maybe you should start My Political Jokes with a Z. Dot org And the way that I think that you can pick that up and the way you can make it and the way you can make it great is to go to squarespace.com where you can turn your cool idea for that political humor website into a site of its own. Showcase your work. You can blog and publish content, sell products and services of all kinds, and you can like even have like an online business. You can sell stuff. There's e-commerce. Or you can just announce an upcoming event if you like want to celebrate your parents' anniversary or something lame like that. Uh, Squarespace does this by giving you beautiful templates created by world-class designers with powerful e-commerce functionality and the ability to customize the look and feel, settings, the products, and more with just a few clicks. Everything's optimized for mobile right out of the box. There's a new way to buy domains and choose from over 200 extensions, analytics to help you grow it in real time, and built-in search engine optimization to help people find my political jokes with a Z. Org. Free and secure hosting, nothing to patch or upgrade ever, and 24-7 award-winning customer support. So now, if you want to try it, you can go to squarespace.com for a free trial, and then when you're ready to launch for 10% off, you enter interesting. That's the offer code you use, interesting. It's in, it's in the title of this show. I think you're interesting. I, I hope you know what you're listening to. You'll save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Again, go to squarespace.com, use do the free trial, try it out, and when you're ready to buy, Interesting's the offer code, 10% off the purchase of a website or domain. Interesting is the offer code. MyPoliticalJokes.org. Use the Z. I think it's available. It was when I checked. Maybe somebody scooped it up between recording this and you listening. You talk a lot in the book about the White House Correspondents' Dinner, which, even as someone who's been in the press for a while now, seems like a bizarre ritual to me, that it even exists. Uh, Trump, of course, didn't attend last year, so maybe maybe it's on the way out. But but can you take us behind the scenes of a Correspondents' Dinner? Like, what's going on on the political side of it? Like, what's that, that day like as you're prepping for, essentially, the president to deliver a late-night television monologue? The day itself was usually pretty calm. I mean, not internally calm. I would be having sort of a series of panic attacks, but in the sense that we would go in and rehearse it once with the president. And by rehearse, I just mean read through the jokes. It wasn't even like he's standing behind the podium or anything like that. Um, one of the benefits I think we had over the professional comedians was that professional comedians and their writing teams are used to rehearsal. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, they'd say, oh, man, we didn't get a chance to dress rehearse this and see what works and what didn't. We were used to not being able to dress rehearse. Then usually on Saturdays, you know, the president would spend his limited weekend time, you know, having whatever six hours of weekend or, or whatever he did. And he would usually make edits one last time. I was very impressed with his handwritten edits. I would get those. I would go to the ballroom, the Hilton ballroom, where they, they do this dinner. 
and I'd be backstage and his aide would sort of come in with the folder and I'd furiously type up all the last minute edits. They were always really good, like uh, understanding that with jokes, you have to think about where the commas go. You have to think about, you know, do you say uh, but or however, you know, the, the difference can kill a joke or make a joke totally land perfectly. Mm-hmm. And he wouldn't do that for a typical speech because you don't need to. But you could tell he understood that with joke telling, that was important and that he had a real ear for it. So I would make those edits and then I'd send the, the final draft around. And then most years I would go up because we'd have this kind of extra AV component where we'd do a couple of jokes where he would say something and then the punchline would really just be a slide that we had photoshopped together or video or something like that. It was my job to make sure that stuff didn't go haywire. Um, But mostly at that point you just watch and, you know, hope it turns out all right. One of the things that I probably knew at some point but had forgotten when I read the book is that you have a lot of uh, outsiders help, especially when it comes to comedy. Um, what is it that like professional comedy writers maybe sometimes don't get about writing for the president or any politician, really? Well, I'll start with the reverse, which is what professional comedy writers got that we sometimes didn't get. Sure. Uh, a lot of the time I saw jokes from our sort of professional comedy writing friends that were more visual mm-hmm. than speech writers because speech writers are used to writing with no stage direction. Sometimes people ask, like, is there a stage direction that says, you know, turn to hero veteran audience salute no that stuff is either ad-libbed or not but i've never seen stage directions like that in a speech so sometimes jokes that had a visual component or a kind of you know a wink or a, a gesture those came from uh professional writers um the other thing a lot of the time i found jokes one of the things i learned from from getting to work with professional comedy writers was that a lot of their jokes were more about attitude than about punchlines yeah so traditionally politicians delivering jokes it's very classic you know set up punchline right. and and you know very you can identify anyone could identify which part is the setup okay now we're beginning the punchline some of president obama's best jokes i think were ones that really were dependent on attitude and those often not always but often came from professionals who and and that was really interesting to see i do think that sometimes just the voice uh was something that we had uh, an advantage with as speechwriters writing for the president every day. Right. And so just a sense of what would the president say in that setup? How would he phrase it? Um, what is sort of something that would be funny for him that would not be as funny if anyone else said it? Because sometimes that was also the challenge for us. You know, President Obama would say this sometimes. You know, he's like, I'm not a comedian, right? His job was to play himself. So Every so often we get jokes from, you know, a writer on a TV show and it would be hilarious, but it would make more sense for a character on that TV show than for the president. And you're always thinking about what can the president say that that it's funnier if he says it than if anyone else says it. What was your favorite correspondence dinner to be a part of? Uh, my favorite one that I was a part of was 2015. And that was the year we had Luther, the anger translator, Keegan-Michael Key's character. Uh, You know, we had him and President Obama on stage, which was great. In our fast-changing world, traditions like the White House Correspondents' Dinner are important. I mean, really? What is this dinner? And why am I required to not do it? Jeb Bush, do you really want to do this? Because despite our differences, we count on the press to shed light on the most important issues of the day. And we can count on Fox News to terrify old white people with some nonsense. 
Sharia law is coming to claim it from the damn hills. That year, the jokes just kind of worked. I mean, almost all of them landed as well or better than I would have thought. So it, it it's pretty rare that that happens exactly the way you want. But if you're around long enough, I suppose you get lucky every now and then. Right, right. I was listening to Jimmy Kimmel on uh, the, the Pod Save America last night. Uh, and uh, this is going to air long after that was dropped, but people will hopefully know what I'm talking about. And he sort of said a thing that has set off a minor controversy in the right wing, uh, the right wing blogosphere, if you will. I don't think we use that word anymore, but you know what I mean. Right. He said that late night hosts tend to be liberals because you need to have a little bit of intelligence to do the job, which has made a lot of people very angry for reasons you can probably figure out. A lot of the times in left-leaning circles, we use comedy as like a, an information delivery vehicle does that make sense mm-hmm. and i'm wondering if you have thoughts about like if we re- over rely on that if we over rely on the idea that like if you watch the right comedy shows you'll like have the right point of view you know i definitely think that this idea that sort of comedians are going to save us is maybe underdeveloped right okay. i do think that that comedy has an important role to play right now mm-hmm. but i think that the idea that if traditional news isn't doing what it's supposed to, comedy will come in and fix the problem. I hope we never have to find out because that I don't think that's going to work perfectly. I, I think that with to me, when people ask why is it that most comedy hosts or why are most comedians liberal, mm. I think you could also ask like why is it that most talk radio hosts or most people who convey messages kind of with anger and in kind of with blunt force in that way tend to be conservative. Right. Some of it I do think is I wouldn't say intelligence, but I do think curiosity plays a part of that. Sure. That comedy is kind of about this not always, right? Sometimes it's just George W. Bush in middle school doing a fart joke. Yeah. But I, I think that most of the time, especially political comedy, is about this search for truth in one way or another. That if you don't understand where what is true and what's not you have trouble figuring out what's funny and what's not. Mm -hmm. So I think that in a world where the right wing increasingly says, well, alternative facts, that's a thing, it's very hard to be funny because we can't agree on our setups. We can't agree on on the premises. We don't know what's absurd because everything's absurd and nothing is absurd. I also think that on the left, we tend to have too much doubt. And on the right, they tend to have too much anger and too much certainty. And so I do think that a lot of comedy comes from a sense of doubt, a sense of skepticism about everything. And maybe we're more comfortable getting our news packaged with some doubt and some some skepticism on the left in the same way that I think people are more comfortable getting their news packaged with certainty on the right. Yeah. I'm happy that I think the sort of myth of like all comedians have to be sad clowns is beginning to go away, which is great. But I do think that most comedians are still people who kind of overthink stuff. And, you know, have no shortage of doubt. Yeah. And so I think that is a, more of a left-leaning characteristic than a right-leaning one. The Trump era seems beyond satire at times. It seems beyond even like uh, mockery. Does that make sense? Like it seems like a comedy – obviously political comedy is thriving right now. But I have lost my appetite for it in a lot of ways. And I'm wondering as you think about that problem of like how do you satirize this era? How do you tell jokes about it? How are you approaching that question? I think it's very difficult because things change so quickly. So if you had asked me this six months ago, I would have said this is a perfect time for political comedy. In fact, no other comedy is doing well at all. And now suddenly I think a lot of people feel the same way you do of like we're oversaturated. I'm done with political comedy. 
And so the the marketplace, not just in a financial way, but just for attention and the audience, is changing so fast in terms of being obsessed with something and only focusing on one thing and then deciding, never mind, we don't care about that. First of all, I think one, it, it raises the bar on just quality, right? You need good stuff. I, and I do think generally that's true, that if something is really good and really funny, it has a better chance of breaking through regardless of what it's about. I think the other thing is now you're seeing stuff where there's some other hook. So, you know, we just did a video at Funny or Die where I work now with Billy Eichner, the comedian. We're, we're doing this thing to try to get young people to vote in the midterms called Glam Up the Midterms. And we had a video with like Jimmy Kimmel and John Oliver and Sarah Silverman and Robin Thede and uh, James Corden, like more late night hosts than you've ever seen in one place before. So it wasn't just Trump. It, there was a hook that said, okay, here's something you haven't seen before. So I think there needs to be this idea that, like, Trump is doing something terrible to the country and we are descending into madness is sadly no longer a new thing. So there needs to be another new thing that hooks you in, and then you can still do comedy about politics. Right. I think part of the problem, for me at least, is Trump is a really obvious target. Set aside everything else about his policies, about anything like just the way he talks is an obvious thing you want to do an impression of. And, like, these jokes have gotten old because he himself is, like, a part of them in some ways, and he's like advancing them in some ways. So, what I'm looking for is the way to like talk about. I don't want to say talk about policy because that sounds really boring, but talk about like America under Trump. And I feel like we haven't figured out that thing yet. Well, you're uh, preaching to the choir here because I am a big believer in issue-based comedy. I might be just the two of us, which could be a problem, <laughs> but I do think that there is some value in that. And this is a little self-serving, but I do think there's also value in. A lot of people in uh, the entertainment industry who have spent their lives figuring out how to be funny and how to get attention are suddenly caring more about politics and caring more about all of these issues than before. But it does take time to get up to speed on that in the same way that like, you know, I sort of dabble in comedy stuff now. But if I, you know, for to, to really write comedy, you know, I think I can do it. But it takes these are skills that it takes time to build them up. So I do think that if you can combine the kind of specific knowledge with the existing just writing ability, you know, sense of humor, that I think is important. The other piece with Trump and how absurd he is, I was talking with a director of a documentary about Russian propaganda called Our New President, and he was giving me kind of his theory of modern and postmodern cults of personality. Um, and his idea was that it used to be that the 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 modern cult of personality, the, the Stalin or whatever, was that everybody sincerely had to believe that the leader was, you know, godlike and, and all this stuff. The postmodern cult of personality, because we just know too much, kind of comes with everything's in air quotes, right? You have all of these Republicans who say like, oh, yeah, Trump's the greatest president ever. And, you know, we're going to support him no matter what. But they're doing all the things that they're saying they're doing ironically. Um, you know, I think you see this a lot on the alt-right, the kind of like, oh, yeah, we're anti-Semites, but you are anti-Semites. You're just saying it like it's a joke. And I think Trump, too, is kind of in on the joke in that way where he – I don't think sees himself as a ridiculous figure at all, but I think he understands that it's a show. Yeah. And he sees himself as a showman uh, rather than a god. Mm. And I do think that makes him not immune to satire but a little bit more difficult to satire because the joke is not that Trump is ridiculous. The joke is that Trump is dangerous. Right. Um, and I think that's a harder joke to make because it's not a as obvious. We're recording this the day after 
Trump gave a speech in which he said that Democrats who didn't clap for the State of the Union uh, were committing treason. And then he walked back by saying it was just a joke. And like, it was, but also it wasn't, you know, like, and that's this weird space we're in where, yes, everything is tinged in like five layers of irony now, but because of the tribal way we process our politics, it becomes very serious, even if you're saying it as a joke. I don't think we need to give a lot of credence to the sort of just kidding defense, right? right. You know, mm-hmm. he's the president. I mean, yeah. it would be one thing if he was a, you know, radio jock, you know, like if Howard Stern said something like that, you'd be like, all right, we should think about that. That's his job. He's the president of the United States. You, you can't just say, oh, I didn't mean it. Yeah. Whether you were kidding or not, if you say it, it has an impact. You were talking earlier about the idea of why perhaps political comedy leans left. And there was, I think, especially during the Bush administration, there was the idea that, like, The Daily Show could convince people because it was funny, but it had the facts or whatever. And I think we've become a little more cynical about that because we're in such a, a, a polarized society. Do you see a way that comedy reaches across that aisle or are we just inevitably only going to laugh at the things that speak to our particular side of things? I think it's hard to know for sure. I mean, I think one of the things that I've found really strange is on the the far right, there's this new thing that is, I wouldn't call it comedy, but the response to it seems to be laughter, right? This sort of like, like the Pepe the Frog meme. Is that comedy? I don't know. It's like a, a green frog who's also a Nazi. I don't see why that's funny. But other people seem to get it. So I do think that we're developing our little silos, and sometimes we call that comedy. In the more main, you know, in, in, in the kind of less fringy world, I think comedy actually can persuade people in a few different ways. So number one, I think if you look at what Jimmy Kimmel did around healthcare, that I think was a, a moment. And sometimes he was being funny, and sometimes he was being sincere. He was speaking to something that he had real personal experience with. And doesn't necessarily break down along partisan lines because you don't – it's not just the Democrats have sick kids or Republicans have sick kids. That could happen to anybody. Sometimes I do think that comedy can get us more information than we had. I'm using Kimmel as another example here. I just think he's been very good at some of this stuff. You know, when he's talking about Russian interference in our elections and how Trump isn't doing anything about it and doesn't want us to know what happened, he is doing something I think somewhat similar to what other types of media are doing, which is probably if you – think that the Russia investigation is a hoax, you're not convinced. But if you think there's some there there, you then have a more nuanced sense of what's going on and how to talk about it with like your uncle who, you know, has been watching Fox and Friends all day. And then the final thing is comedy can persuade people to to take action rather than necessarily to change someone's mind. Changing minds still happens, but it's hard. I do think that particularly right now, uh, we're going into a midterm election. I think there's a perfect example. Um, in two, 2014, 12% of eligible millennials voted in the midterms, right. which is just an appalling number. Uh, I don't think that comedy can make that number 100%, but if comedy can get that number to just by making people aware there's an election going on and that everybody's voting and this is something you should do and reminding people that this exists and is an opportunity that people have, if we can get that number from, say, 12% to 17%, America would look pretty fundamentally different than it does right now just because of that. So it's not that people who were hardcore Republicans watched The Daily Show and then left and said, yeah, you know, I agree with everything Jon Stewart said. Um, But I do think that there is, even now, there's a way for comedy to have impacts on the margins. But, you know, we're a very 
almost 50-50 country in a lot of these political divides. So the margins are where the impacts happen. So, you know, if you're like me, you maybe you made a New Year's resolution even to just lose a couple pounds to just be like, I need to get a little more in shape. I ate all those holiday cookies. And now it's March. My God, it's March. How did the time pass that quickly? And maybe you're having trouble sticking to it. Maybe you're falling off. Well, I have been doing a pretty good job of it. And a big part of that is thanks to the folks at Beachbody on demand. It's an easy to use streaming service that gives you instant access to a wide variety of super effective workouts you can do from the comfort of your living room. It's a company with a history of success. They're behind P90X, Insanity, 21 Day Fix, T25, Brazil Butt Lift, and a whole bunch of other stuff. I just wanted to say Brazil Butt Lift. They've got amazing trainers. You'll have heard of some of them. Sean T, Shalene Johnson, Tony Horton, Autumn Calabrese. You can get workouts that will fit your schedule no matter what time you have. As short as 10 minutes, like those are the ones that I frequently have to do. I have to like just just stop and, and do like 10 minutes of some very light exercising and like that helps me. Even if you can break up your day in that little increment, it's really going to help. That's something I've learned from working with Beachbody. And they have a giant support community. There's 1 million people currently on Beachbody On Demand. You can access it from like any web-enabled TV, Roku, smartphone, whatever. So listeners of I Think You're Interesting can try it absolutely for free. Here's how you're going to do it. Here's how you're going to keep your resolution now that it's March. You're going to text THINK to 303030303030 and you get a special free trial membership. Again, that's text Think to 303030. You get all the workouts. You get nutrition information. You get great like information on diet and, and recipes and all of that. Uh, and you get all of the support totally free. Just text THINK to 303030. A lot of young people, they think they're invincible. Did you say inv- invisible? Because uh, no, I just no. think like, that's impossible. Not, not invisible, invincible. Okay. Me- meaning that they don't think they can get hurt. I'm just saying that nobody could be invisible if you had said invisible. I understand that. If they get that health insurance, it can really make a big difference. And they've got till March 31st to sign up. I don't have a computer, so how does... Well, then you can call 1-800-318-2596. I don't have a phone. I'm off the grid. I don't want you people like looking at my text, if you know what I mean. First of all, Zach, nobody's interested in your texts. But second of all, uh, you can do it in person. And the law means that insurers can't discriminate against you if you've got a pre-existing condition anymore. You talk in the book about how Obama's appearance on Between Two Ferns drove a lot of signups at healthcare.gov. How much of that, to your mind, like, is what we're talking about now, that, like, comedy can increase awareness of things? And how much of it was just, like, the novelty of that this thing happened, you know? I think there were two things going on there, Mm -hmm. maybe three. So, number one... It was just a legitimately really funny and surprising thing. Clearly, people just enjoyed this really funny thing that features a politician. The other thing, I'm always looking for problems where the solution is awareness. With healthcare.gov, the issue among young people was not that they didn't want health insurance or that they believed all the nonsense, the like death panels were out there, that the website was going to, I don't even know what. The issue was young people didn't know that the website worked. And they didn't know that they could get health care generally for pretty cheap. Mm-hmm. And when the the problem is a lack of awareness, that's where something like a viral video can do a lot of good because you don't have to do a lot of explaining. All you have to do is let people know one thing. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing is, is there a clear action item? 
Yeah. I loved the thing, the, the ferns that Hillary did. And it was really funny. And, uh, you know, it's Scott Ackerman and, and Zach Galifianakis who write it. I mean, they're, it's amazing. I don't know that it had the impact that the Between Two Ferns with President Obama had because there wasn't a clear click here to sign up uh, moment. And so because there was a very easy way to translate enjoying this video and learning a new fact into taking action, that made things a lot easier and it made it um, much more straightforward. How can a video have an impact? Working in the White House, how does that prepare you to work at somewhere like Funny or Die? When I left the White House, and I did sort of have to do the thing where my parents were like, oh, great, you found a new job. And I was like, yeah, it's at Funny or Die. And they were like, what's that? (laughs) And I was like, it's a comedy website. And they gave me a look. So one of the reasons I wanted to go from the White House to to a place like Funny or Die is that it was so different. Uh, You know, I have – it's been almost exactly two years since I left the White House. And I've never once woken up and thought, wow, I do exactly what I used to do, but the stakes feel lower. Mm. And that was important to me. Um, The other – thing that I think I learned when it came to writing speeches and writing for Funny or Die or writing a book or any of the other things that I, I've been doing is you, you get a sense of kind of when to push back and when to listen. Mm. And knowing how to believe in yourself but also how to listen to other people is a very hard skill. And the White House, at least certainly the Obama White House, was this kind of crucible because you worked with people who are incredibly busy, a lot of pressure, Everybody's very smart, has strong opinions, and it was a good work environment, but you had to have a, a, an understanding of when to advocate for yourself and when to back off and just stay in your lane. Yeah, I, I was talking about meeting with someone in the entertainment industry and I, how I was nervous, and somebody said, well, you know, why are you nervous? You've had to stand in the Oval Office and tell the President of the United States that he was wrong. And I never had to do that. Like, I never did that. But then I realized no one else knows I never did that. So now when I go into a meeting where if I'm meeting someone new, I'm like, let's just pretend that I've had to stand in the Oval Office and tell the president he's wrong. And I, so it does make you a little fearless in that way. There's an anecdote in the book about uh, working with Harvey Weinstein. Around when the book came out, honestly, is when the stories about Harvey Weinstein broke. You, you obviously did not know him well. He does not come off terribly flatteringly in the book, let's say. How did hearing those stories come out? How did that color your memory of that event? It made it a lot less funny. So for people who haven't read the book, what I talked about was my um, Harvey Weinstein encounter, which was, you know, orders of magnitude less traumatic and terrible than a lot of people's, clearly. But also pretty familiar, I think, to anyone in L.A. um, was that uh, he was sort of producing a segment, uh, a series of speeches um, at the 2012 Democratic Convention, he had seen Clint Eastwood give this rambling address on behalf of Hollywood at the Republican Convention. He decided, you know what we need? At least this was how it was told to me. Mm-hmm. You know what we need is like young, smart actresses out there representing the other side. And so Scarlett Johansson and Kerry Washington came to Charlotte and I was responsible for the speeches. And Harvey was not happy about anything I was doing and would just call me and yell at me periodically, which made no sense because I didn't have enough power to actually do any of the things he wanted. But he would just kind of scream at me. I think there were kind of two pieces to that. I think, first of all, it made me wonder whether I didn't do enough to think about whether there was other stuff going on behind this, right, right. behind this attitude. And I do think that one of the things that we have seen pretty regularly is that the people who treat people who work for them terribly or people who you know don't, don't necessarily abuse, physically abuse, but 
just get off on being powerful and abusing their power in one way, there's often a correlation and they tend to abuse their power in a lot of ways, including, as we've seen, with sexual assault. I never really thought about that. And I guess it was kind of a luxury that I never had to think about that. And then the other thing was uh, along those lines, I think it made me think about just more broadly how we countenance that kind of abuse of power. Mm. I don't think, you know, the fact that I got yelled at by Harvey Weinstein wasn't traumatic then. It's not traumatic now. I was lucky because I worked for the president and wasn't, my job was not on the line. There was no real threat to me. But I do think the fact that, that this was just kind of a thing that everyone knew and it was an anecdote and whatever, you know, I think we need to be more careful about that. The common thread running through so much of what's bad about our politics and our culture and our society these days is people with a lot of power taking advantage of people without a lot of power. And people who do that in in one way do it in all sorts of ways. So I, I think it made me think about that as a kind of unifying thread. And I have to say, you know, Democrats have a long way to go, but I'm glad that as a party, I think we are reckoning with it and trying to think about what we do about that stuff going forward, even if we haven't solved it yet. You end the book on a real. I, I actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna back this up because I assume that you had to rework the ending of the book. Yeah, the epilogue Trump changed a little bit. <laughs> so tell me about that. Well, so I had written, I left the White House in January 2016, and I had a first draft of the book ready to go uh, in September of that year. Sure. And then I started making edits, and I had like what I thought was a pretty solid book, except for the epilogue, November of 2016. And I figured, I, I went to Miami with my then-girlfriend, now fiancé, and we did get out the vote stuff for four days. And then after that, my plan was to go home, crank out the triumphant epilogue, mm-hmm. and then the book would be in pretty good shape. And then Trump happened. Yeah. And I had this moment of like, okay, that epilogue's going to be real different. I do think it mattered to me in a different way. I would say the whole book changed in, in one way, which is uh, it started to get more serious. I mean, I still think it's a funny book, and I really appreciate that, like, I've heard from people who are like, oh, you know, you made me laugh embarrassingly loud on an airplane, and now everyone mm-hmm. thinks I'm insane. I'm like, oh, good. I'm glad I did that. That said, there was this sense of urgency, almost like a time capsule. of This is what politics looked like when it wasn't perfect, but it was designed to be good. It was full of people who were really good at their jobs, who were there for the right reasons, who were thinking about how to make life a little bit better for Americans every day. And yeah, sometimes it was absurd and it was funny and it didn't always go the way we wanted, but it was important to get down what that felt like because that's certainly not what it feels like now. Well, you end the book on like a real note of optimism that Trump is not going to wipe out Obama's America, even if he wipes out all of Obama's policies. Do you still feel that optimism a year on? I do. I, I've always thought of myself as a long-term optimist, and mm. I am still a long-term optimist. You know, I think things are going to get continue to get worse before they get better. Mm. I, I think a lot of it hinges on what happens in the midterms uh, as to how much worse they're going to get. But I think that over the long run, number one, I'm still very uh, hopeful by the fact that this president is historically unpopular. So you have a president that a majority of Americans didn't vote for. The majority of Americans don't approve of his policies and they don't think he's doing a good job. He's still the president. He still controls Congress, both houses. So he's going to do stuff. But um, the the point that I was trying to make in the epilogue is that he doesn't represent who we are as a country and that's not going to change. And I don't think it'll change. Um, I think to some extent what has changed is the energy of people 
you know, I, I felt a little complacent in 2016. I left the White House. I wrote a book. I worked for Funny or Die. I kind of thought someone else will take care of the really serious stuff. And one of the things, even though I'm trying to figure out exactly how to translate this lesson into my own life, one of the things I did come away thinking is no one else is going to do it. You know, no one's coming to save us. We have to save ourselves. And we've seen, you know, from the Women's March on, this incredible enthusiasm and energy um, from the majority of the country that does not support Trump, mostly Democrats, but also a few Republicans. And then the final thing is I have gotten to talk to a lot of young people mm-hmm. with this book, and I, I am now 31, so my definition of young people is kind of 25 and, and younger. Yeah. And the people I've talked to, I've always expected people to say, you know, Trump got elected. Basically, all these adults totally screwed up everything. And, you know, I, I don't know what I'm doing, but I don't want to be any I don't want any part of that. And I've only heard the opposite. I mean, the, the amount of energy and the amount of the number of people who say, yeah, you know what I did, like I was volunteering on this campaign and it was awesome. And I think about how broken our politics is, but how idealistic the people who are still involved in it are and how driven the people who are still involved in it are. And I think the over time, we're going to be able to fix the brokenness of the politics and keep the the energy of the people who are taking part in it. As we kind of head into the end of the show, I have to ask, what is the joke you wrote for Obama that you're proudest of having written? In 2013, I wrote a joke, and this was obviously a different time for Republicans because they had just done their autopsy of 2012, and it had concluded that they had to reach out beyond their base, support immigration reform, all this stuff. And the joke was one thing Republicans all agree on is they have to do a better job reaching out to minorities. Call me self-centered, but I could think of one minority they could start with. I I love that joke because, A, it's the first time President Obama referred to himself as a minority, I think, in any context. We almost didn't show him that joke because we wondered if he'd want to do that. So it was pushing the envelope a little bit on him talking about his own identity. But also because I felt like it really got at a, a an important political truth of that moment, probably in ways we didn't even fully realize, right? Like Republicans realized they need to, needed to do better, but because Barack Obama was in office, they just couldn't get started. Mm-hmm. And looking back on it, you know, not only did I think that was a funny joke, but also it got at something real about the state of the country that probably we couldn't have said in a regular speech. Well, we end every show by asking our guests some of the same questions. So I'm going to ask you those. Uh, we're going to start with, what's the last like movie you watched, TV show you watched, book you read, the last pop culture thing you did, basically, and what did you think of it? I just binge-watched The Sopranos for what has to be like the eighth time. Yeah. And every time that show is about something different to me, mm. and so uh, and maybe that's my way of dealing with like too much good TV, is I just always end up going back to The <laughs> Sopranos. But I highly recommend it, especially if you haven't seen it since Trump got elected. Because it has this cocktail of this kind of resentment and entitlement and very loose attitudes toward the law, obviously, where it's almost like watching – it's like this kind of 90s, early 2000s show and you're like, wait a second. They called it. It's really remarkable. What is your favorite joke that somebody else has told? I'm I just because we've been talking about course, the correspondence centers. I'm just going to go with my favorite one that that someone else told at one of those, which was the joke that Seth Meyers told in 2011. This was when Trump was in the audience, and he said, it, "Donald Trump says he, he is very popular among the blacks, unless the blacks are a family of white people. I don't think he's correct, or something along those lines." <laughs> and I love that joke. 
you know, I think not not because not just because I don't like Donald Trump. I mean, whatever, but because just the construction of that is so absolutely perfect. The book is Thanks, Obama. It is in bookstores now. David, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. All of I Think You're Interesting's material, especially its super funny jokes, is written by your host and executive producer, Todd Vanderwerf. Guess what? That's me. Our producer is Bridget Armstrong. Vox Podcasting is headed up by Marty Moe and Jackie Goldstein. Our executive producer of audio is Nishak Kerwa. Our sound designer is Miles Yule. Our logo design is thanks to Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production manager is Alex Ulreich. Our production coordinator is Carrie Clements. And this week's episode was recorded in the Vox Media Podcast Studio in Washington, D.C. Our recording engineer for the framing segments, which you're listening to right now, was Jay Brooks. You can rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, please do so. It really helps us get the word out. We really appreciate it. You can email me if you have something you want to say, Todd at Vox.com. You can email the show if you want to talk to all of us for some reason. ityi.podcast at Vox.com. That's itye.podcast at Vox.com. Sometimes we get like emails to the full show. It's very str- It's always very strange. I always wonder why it's happening. But yes, it goes to me. It goes to everybody. So please use it if you want to. And you can tweet at me at TVOT to Vody next week we are going to have in the studio somebody I've never talked to I've always wanted to talk to whose name is Jason Kadams he worked on Friday Night Lights Parenthood my so-called life so we're going to have to talk about that for a while so I hope you look forward to that and we'll see you then until then if you ever find yourself in a situation where you need to give the president a joke uh, just you know go with a knock-knock those always kill people love knock-knock jokes 